Well, welcome Redemption Arcadia. My name is Malia, and if I'm honest, I'm really nervous about getting through all the things I have to say, so bear with me. Uh, but my name's Malia. Um, I'm a part of our staff. I help with worship, and then I also run our social media. Um, if you're new here this morning, we welcome you. We're so excited that you're here. Um, connect with us at the Connect Desk. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, well, we are Redemption Arcadia. We um, are a local expression of the family of God, and we seek to embody the gospel in all of life in the Arcadia area. We are one church in 10 congregations. We're gospel-centered, outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Um, this morning, we have a couple of announcements before we get started. Uh, we are hosting a blood drive tomorrow from 7 to 11. Uh, we'd love for you guys to join us in giving to our community in that way and loving our neighbor um, as ourselves in that way. So you can sign up on our website for a slot, um, but it's just going to be here in the sanctuary from 7 to 11 tomorrow. Um, and then we also are collecting backpacks and school supplies for Hope Women's Center. Um, that's in the lobby, so you can bring those items to the lobby on Sundays or during the week, um, and we'll take those to them at the end of August. Um, I think that is everything, so you can go ahead and stand for the reading of the Word of God. Good morning, church. Oh, my goodness. Good morning, church. Uh, we are reading out of John 12 this morning, uh, verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they, they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they could not be put out of the synagogue, or so they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, thanks, Zach. Appreciate that. Just going to move this over a little bit. Hi, everybody. I'm Trey. <laughs> I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Frank's gone because he runs a camp every year, and he's still getting back from this camp, and he loves doing it, and we love letting him go because he always comes back with, like, this renewed vigor. But he used to do this thing where he would say, all the things I learned from camp, I always loved that. But, yeah, so he's gone. Uh, he'll be back next week. Uh, a couple things I wanted to remind everybody as we're starting this season in the fall. So in a few weeks, on the 30th, which is a Monday this month, we're going to, in the sanctuary, be having our young adults ministry. So if you are in college, or if you're 18 to 20s, we would love to have you. We'll have dinner, and we're talking about God's word. It'll be good. And then this Wednesday starts youth group. So what Malia did, woohoo! Zach's a leader. He played the, I just steal all my leaders from the band. Uh, Zach, Eleanor, Malia. But Malia was with the microphone. She's one of the leaders, too. She didn't say that, but that's her favorite thing she does at this church. I'm kidding. I hope it is, actually. But if you were with us for the past few weeks, you know we were in Nehemiah. And we spent nine weeks in Nehemiah. We went through uh, how God's people were returning to being the covenant people of God. They built this wall so that they can live in God's holy city and be distinct from other people. They'd be different, set apart, holy. And then we read into chapter 13 about how man can never be perfect at their side of the covenant. And so God, uh, so he pushes towards for us to look to the cross that Jesus is the one who comes and makes it right on both sides. So God holds his side of the covenant and ours through Christ. And so we got to go through that in Nehemiah. It was good. Uh, we're going back into John, which is where we were before Nehemiah. So we're gonna, if you have your Bibles, we'll be in John 12. And then after a few weeks in John, we're going to start our countercultural convictions again, which we did a long time ago. I did the last one, and then the whole world shut down. And so we're going to pick that up again, and hopefully things stay easy sailing. But you never know when I'm preaching. So, yes. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to John 12. My hope and prayer for this passage is that uh, the intention of why it's here would hit the way that it was intended. So I... 
I don't want to just sit on the implications. We'll get to those. But I want to really lay into why is this here, and, what, and then we'll get into what that means. So uh, I want to be faithful to the text. And we, we need to do some introductory work first. But let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would welcome you well. I pray that your will would be had this morning and that your glory would be had. I pray that you would grow in us to be um, all about you, you getting your glory. And Lord, I pray that I would be forgettable, but your word and your message this morning would be uh, remembered. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray that you would work in our hearts and our minds. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I love turkey. Uh, I, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays, and granted, we eat the same thing for Christmas, but in, on Thanksgiving, we get the turkey, and in my family, we have the mashed potatoes. We make a bowl out of the mashed potatoes. We put the turkey in the bowl, and we cover it with gravy, and I love it. And then, we, of course, we eat all the other stuff, but that's the first thing, that turkey. But then I married Hannah, and I learned what went into getting that turkey on the table. Hannah's family, every year, on the Sunday before the Thursday of Thanksgiving, they go through what they call Turkey Day. I thought Thanksgiving was Turkey Day. No, no. Turkey Day is the Sunday before where we slaughter all the turkeys that were raised the whole year. Yeah. And I, okay, so the first time I was invited, um, Hannah told me, okay, we're going you know, we, to be slaughtering the turkeys. And I'm like, sweet. You know, it's like cleaning a fish. It'll be great. <laughs> like, I've, I've done that before. And so I, I come, and um, I actually came straight from church. We actually were, I was here, and I, was, I went from church, and I was in my, my church clothes. And she didn't tell me, hey, you're going to get dirty, so bring a change of clothes. So I went, well, I ended up getting blood all over me. <laughs> There's a lot, I was really, I really wanted to go through all the steps of what it took to do this with this turkey, but I decided not to. But on turkey day, I learned what it took for me to enjoy turkey on Thanksgiving. And this passage helps us understand what it took for us to enjoy and have abundant life in Christ. So this passage today is our turkey day. I can't wait for, for November. Okay. Uh, so if you've... I'm going to go a little bit through what we've gone through in the Gospel of John just because it's been a while. So in, up until now, we've gone through the, the public ministry of Jesus. That's that he's teaching publicly, that he's doing these signs for everybody to see. And now in chapter 12, we come to the close of that. So this is, he's no, from here on out, he's no longer in the public eye. This is the last words that he says publicly to an audience. So we really want to clue in, what was he about? And he kind of gives into this little summary of what his whole public ministry has been about. And so if for the first 12 chapters, we have Jesus doing these wonderful things. And then now, after this, we go into what starts the betrayal and the, uh, Jesus washing the feet and the Last Supper, the betrayal, and then the crucifixion and resurrection. And uh, we're going to start in verse 36, um, if you want to be there. But there's two themes I want us to listen for. And that will be unbelief and glory. Those are going to be the two themes that we're going to talk about from this passage. So it starts off in verse 36, and it says, I'm going to read the second half. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So when I said that this was the end of Jesus' public ministry, this is him removing himself from the public eye. But you'll notice in the first part of that verse, it says, when Jesus had said these things. So normally when we see that, we want to go back to see what did Jesus say. And we could do that. But today, we're actually going to go forward to see what he said. So if you skip down to verse 44, it says, And Jesus cried out and said. You'll notice there's no setting. There's no new scene. It doesn't give a new like, setting for this. It's just Jesus cries out. So you can read this in one of two ways. We can read this as a chronological account as Jesus departed, and then he's like behind a rock, and he just kind of yells out and cries out. Or we can read, which a lot of times is the way that scripture was written, not necessarily for chronological accounting, but to communicate a message. And so the message this would be communicating, if it's not read chronologically, is that, hey, this is what Jesus has been saying through his whole public ministry. So as we go through verse 44 through 50, we want to be reminded that Jesus has been saying this over and over. And when we read through this, 
I, I, of course, went through like many of the chapters behind. I'm like, oh man, he says that same thing here and here. Over and over, he's been giving the same sermons. And so verse 44 through 50 is going to give us what this whole public ministry has been about. So we're going to start there, and then we'll move back up to why the people didn't receive this message. So this is the message. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as a light. So Jesus says, just like in John 8, I'm the light of the world, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So we have that theme of Jesus coming to save the world. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So his word will be the rubric for condemnation. Verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority. This is really cool. We're getting to see how the Trinity works together. And Jesus, in his perfect relationship with the Father, submits himself to the Father and only speaks what the Father tells him to say. He goes on and he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. Now what is this commandment? What to say and what to speak? So he only speaks the words of God. And then, verse 50, And I know that his commandment, the things I said, his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So Jesus' public ministry has a lot of themes, and there's a few of them are this. Believe in Jesus to be saved. He says, come to me, I'm the light of the world, you'll not remain in darkness. Jesus and the Father are one. If you, he who looks at me does not just see me, but he sees the Father. If you believe in me, then you believe in the Father. So Jesus and the Father are one. We see that Jesus is the light of the world. Those who come to Jesus leave the darkness. If we hear and keep Jesus' words, we have to hear and keep. That's the path towards being saved. Jesus came to save the world. And then there's this theme, rejecting Jesus and his message is embracing judgment. It's not that you can just say, no, I don't believe that. But he gives this theme of, if you reject his message, you are embracing judgment. You're choosing to grab hold of that. Then there's the words Jesus spoke either to condemn, well, the words that Jesus spoke either condemn or give life. And then Jesus speaks under the authority of the Father. So there's a few of these themes that Jesus is talking about. Um, But as far as Jesus coming to save the world, a a scholar, um, Andreas Kostenberger, said it this way, The purpose of his coming is not condemnation, but transformation and deliverance from the wrath of God and the sentence of eternal death, which rests on humanity as a whole. Condemnation already rests on humanity in our sin. Jesus' coming is not to condemn, like he says. Jesus' coming was to save people who were already condemned in their sin. And he is now given in his public ministry, he's now, okay, this is the message. He's given these words. Now they'll either condemn by people embracing judgment instead of receiving his uh, message, or they will bring life in that people will receive this message. So what we read from this is that life is found in God's word because God's word shows us the person of the word. Life is found in God's word because God's word shows us the person of the word. So life is found by embracing Jesus through his word. Hear me on this. There's no other way to embrace Jesus than to embrace Jesus through his word. Lest he, to us, become something that he is not. So now we've hit, this is the message of Jesus' public ministry. Now let's jump back up to verse 37 and we'll read through why, why these people hear this message. They hear this wonderful sermon that Jesus has been saying over and over and they don't believe it. So we're going to dive into that now. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So many signs, they still did not believe in him. 
Jesus gives this killer sermon, poor response. And it encourages me. <laughs> Jesus resurrects people from the dead. Just in the last chapter, he's risen Lazarus from the dead. They saw this. Three different times, God opens up the heavens and audibly speaks over Jesus, and people hear it. They saw him heal people who were blind. They saw him heal people who were deaf. In fact, Scripture tells us that if they were to account everything that Jesus did, the world couldn't hold enough books for us to write them all down. Jesus did so many things, and they saw so many of these signs, and yet they still did not believe. This is the time I feel like Disney got it right. In Santa Claus, Tim Allen says, seeing isn't believing. Believing is seeing. Super cheesy. But it's true. It's true. Seeing isn't believing. Even if you were to see these signs, it wouldn't be enough. These people, Israel, saw the miracles, heard Jesus' words from his own mouth. Wasn't enough. Today, through a miracle... God's word, his very words are given to us. Still not enough for some people. For some it is. But why isn't it enough for some other people? Side note, I want to make this observation. As Jesus preaches this sermon and gets horrible fruitfulness, I want to say our, we cannot judge our faithfulness by fruitfulness. In fact, we can't judge our faithfulness by our idea of fruitfulness. Here, Jesus is faithful to preach the message that God has given him. I preach only what the Father has told me. He's faithful to give that message. And yet people don't believe it. To me, that sounds like not faith, fruitfulness. But my idea of fruitfulness is different. God's idea of fruitfulness is that Israel would hear the message and reject it. So our job is to be faithful to what God's word has told us and trust him with the outcome. Similarly, the way that Jesus did it. We want to model our lives the way Christ did. But what is he doing here? He gives this great message. No, they don't believe. Verse 38. So they don't believe, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So they're not believing so that the Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled. Okay, so that seems like a pretty big deal. But why is there an Old Testament prophecy about people not believing? Why don't why just everybody just believe? Okay, so part of it is that we want to fulfill Old Testament uh, prophecy. But the other thing is there's something going on here that God's doing that he would prophesy this in the first place. We're about to get into two quotes that John writes about from Isaiah. Isaiah 53.1, and then we're going to move into Isaiah 6.10. And we're going to talk a little bit about how unbelief works. Kind of the turkey day behind. How does it work? So... Read with me. Uh, verse 38 goes on. It says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Not discovered. It says revealed. Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? Therefore, they could not believe. They didn't even have it in their power. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. God is blinding them and purposely keeping them from believing. Let's not cruise over this. God kept them from believing, kept Israel from believing. In fact, he was so intent on that happening that Jesus came in a certain way. He quoted uh, Isaiah 53. Let me read a little bit more from Isaiah 53. If we go on, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men so that Israel would reject him. He even came in a certain way. He came not pretty enough, knowing that the human heart would reject him because man looks to the outward appearance as God looks to the heart. So he even came in a specific way so that the way that we operate, which is in a sinful, imperfect way, would be the avenue by which they would reject Jesus. He did this on purpose. It's interesting because we see in the life of Jesus 
what I've heard some pastors say as humiliation before exaltation. This is the path that Jesus took to his glory. Humiliation before exaltation. This is the way that glory works if it comes from God. So why would Isaiah say this? In Isaiah 41, it says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. He saw the glory of God and spoke of him. What's really cool about this is Isaiah is giving his account of when he has a vision of the throne room of God. And he sees God's glory and he says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I shouldn't be here. Falls down. And it's just like God to do what he does. He makes him clean before him. An angel grabs some uh, a hot coal and touches his mouth and says, now you're a man of clean lips. Then God says, all right, who am I going to send to give this message? And Isaiah's like, I'm here. I'll go. So he sends Isaiah. Isaiah goes and gives this message, this message of God is hardening Israel's heart and blinding their eyes. This is the message, the hard message. Who can I send to send this hard message? Isaiah's like, let's do it. I'll do it. So he sees God's glory and is undone, and he sees God's glory, so he is willing to give God's message. So this is why he gives this message. Another man asked to see God's glory, and this is how God responds. Exodus 33, Moses said, please show me your glory, God. God said, I will make all my goodness. Moses asked for your glory, and you said, goodness? So God's response to his glory being shown, he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God's glory is good. God's glory, he equates to his goodness. So God's glory is good also. We don't get God's glory and his goodness without his sovereignty. His sovereignty, he's over all, he rules all, he is in control of all. We don't get his glory and his goodness without his sovereignty. It's interesting that when he mentions his glory, he goes on to say, and this is who I'm going to have mercy on, and this is who I'm going to have grace on. Let's read on. Verse 42. Nevertheless... Many, even the authorities, believed in him. Whoa, 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 whoa. So the Pharisees are believing in, there's some Pharisees here that are believing in Jesus. And then you go on and it says, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So there's a different glory here at play. There's glory from man and glory from God. And because they loved man's glory so much, even though they believed, they remained in darkness. They chose to live in darkness. There are people today where we get this. We know who Jesus is and we choose to remain in sin. This is the heart of man. That even people could believe and see his glory and choose to remain in darkness. Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. If you come to me, you will not remain in darkness. People know who he is and then choose not to because they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This means that believing Jesus' words and living Jesus' words are two different things. They're connected, but they're different. I want to go back and look at, there's this time in the same chapter, if we go back to verse 25, it talks about how there's this play between the glory of man and the glory of God. And God kind of gives some uh, prescription there. He says in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. See, what he's saying here is for you to embrace Jesus, you will not belong to the world. That's the way it works. So if we believe in Jesus, we have to also heed his word. And so he says, this is part of the word. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, here it is, the Father will honor him. Honor, glory, exalt. Man, the path God gives us for our glory is humiliation before exaltation. He who hates his life in this world will find it in eternal life. Man, but we think we can do better, don't we? I don't want to be lowly. I want to be liked. Here lies the same potential we all have. To believe lies, which means not believing God. What Israel's professing here is that they think what they think is good is better than what God says is good. We do this. We think happiness is better than holiness. We think packing our schedule is better than practicing Sabbath. We think being liked is better than living a life of Christ. We think sleeping in is better than spending some time with God in the morning. Do we believe a life of dying to ourself, humility, counting others as more important than ourselves, is actually better? If we looked at the way we behaved and the way that we treated people, would we see that that's somebody who counts others as more important than themselves? Is that someone who's humble? Is that somebody who chooses the life of servitude? I could ask, so many tasteless people have asked, do you want heaven or do you want hell? Or I could ask, do you want to live for your happiness or do you want to live for God's glory? It's the same question. Funny thing is you can try to live for your happiness and you'll end up missing both. I also want to make this observation. The passage says that they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. It doesn't just say that the glory that comes from man is bad and evil and wicked. Affirmation, affection, praise all have their place in God-honoring relationships. In fact, I would encourage you too. we should probably do more of what we give in affection and affirmation and praise. So it's not to say that it's bad, but praise is like perfume. It's pleasant to smell, but when you drink it, it's poisonous. The moment that we make our praise more important than God's glory, it's poisonous. But it still can be used as a way to glorify God. So there's a lot of implications that this text brings. But I do want to be serious about the intention of why this is here. So why is this here? What's the intention here? Uh, and this is it. The cross wasn't plan B. The cross was not plan B. In Genesis 3, God gives the curse from sin, but he also gives the promise that he would send his son. So why would Jesus come, live a life of being a lowly, unpretty servant, go to the cross and feel this horrible pain? Let's get into it. Verse 27, if we keep reading from where we were before, verse 27, now is my soul troubled. Jesus just wept from his friend dying, and then he raised him from the, from the dead. Yes, but he still wept. Jesus knows he's about to be betrayed by one of his friends. He knows that his, one of his best friends is about to deny him. I can imagine. Have you felt this emotional drained, uh, this like emotional uh, heaviness? that's like, oh, my soul is troubled. Jesus knows he's about to go to the cross. All these things too, but mainly he's going to go to the cross and he's going to feel the separation from God. He's going to be in physical pain, but he's also going to drink the spiritual wrath that God has. So he says, my soul is troubled. So why would Jesus do this? He says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, going to the cross, I have come to this hour. And then he ends his prayer with this from verse 28. Father, glorify your name. Jesus was all about God's glory. Jesus' whole life here on earth was about God's glory. And he chose that path of humiliation before exaltation. Similarly, 
as Jesus says that this path is, his always, was always to the cross, the people of Israel had to reject him. If Israel had believed, they would not have crucified him. So this is the intention of this passage. Israel's unbelief brought us life. This is Turkey Day. This is the stuff we don't want to have to see, but it's the way that God works. It begs some questions. God, isn't there a better way? We'll, we'll jump into that. But this passage is here to show the fulfillment of the scriptures and to show us the importance of the cross. All right, let's get into some implications. First implication is this. And I have five, but because five is a better number than six, I made one of them a subsection. So, uh, so God's glory trumps everything. These are some implications from what this text means. God's glory trumps everything. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. God's glory belongs only to God. For anyone else to take it is wrong. So for God to be jealous for his glory is not wrong. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the best scorer the NBA has ever seen. For him to want that title is not wrong because it is his. Jesus, God's glory is God's glory. It belongs to no other. Isaiah 43, 7 even says, Jesus lived his whole life for the glory of God. Isaiah 43, 7 says, we were formed for God's glory. So we want to ask, what's our purpose? Like, why are we here? What's the meaning of life? Here it is, to glorify God. That's why we were formed. So we should be jealous for God to get God's glory. The second implication is that God's glory is good. Romans 8, 28 through 30, we like to stop after 28, but I'm going to read past it. It says this, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That sanctification, looking more like Jesus every day. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, here it is, he also glorified. The glory that comes from man is different than the glory that comes from God. The glory that comes from God is a path of humiliation before exaltation. It says here that we have to be conformed to the image of his son. Sanctification. To look like Jesus is to look like a servant. To look like a servant is to choose that path of humiliation before exaltation. And guess what, guys? This is good. This is good. Uh, implication number three is God is sovereign over everything including belief. God is sovereign over everything, including belief. Israel's unbelief brought us life. In fact, the plan that God set in motion, the reason he chose the way he did things, brought him glory, and that is good. Jesus, uh, John says in, Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And this is where that subsection is because I like five more than I like six. This should bring us comfort. It should bring us comfort that salvation isn't in our hands. You can't lose it. John 10 says that uh, no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. This is so hard for our pride to hear though, isn't it? I want to control what I believe. That's just not what God's word says. Implication number four is belief is not from discovery, but of revelation. God is the one who opens the eyes of the blind. So your belief, the way that belief works, is not from discovering it. I found Jesus. No, Jesus revealed himself to you. It is, this is the way, this is the implication of what we read. The way that belief works is that uh, it is a path of revelation, not discovery. God is the one who opens the eyes to the blind. And then implication number five, people are still responsible for their unbelief. 
People are still responding. Wait a minute. But God controls who believes. Yeah? Verse 48 in John 12 says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. To reject Jesus is to embrace judgment. Why? Why does God have to do it this way? Why Isn't there a better way? Well, if you have your Bibles and you're there um, at John 12, I'm going to flip to Romans 9. And you can flip there with me. We'll have the words on the screen. And this is talking about the same part of belief. And this is what God says. So in verse 14, it says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he has... For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scriptures, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. If you remember, Pharaoh got to taste ten different plagues. Didn't stop at one or two or three or five, ten. God hardened his heart so that he could show his strength and power. Eighteen. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is how it works. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who's, who, can be, who can be at fault anymore? God's the one who controls it. So you say to me... Who can find fault? For who can resist God's will? And here's the response. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? How silly for the cup to say to the cup maker, Isn't there a better way? This is the way God's word works. This is the way God's word has revealed itself to us is that belief works in this way. And there's some things we do have to understand, too. It does work well because if every, like I said, everybody was under condemnation already. If everybody went to hell, if everybody had gone to hell and nobody was saved, that would be just. That's what we deserve. We're not entitled, entitled to salvation or belief. For anyone to come to faith is a miracle. God calls people to himself because he wants to save some from the condemnation that already rests on man. Our job doesn't change. Our job is not to find who has faith and who doesn't. Our job is to preach the word. And we leave the outcome and the fruitfulness up to God. That's his job. It's not our job. It's his job. So in this, I just want to say, I don't want to push people away from hearing this, but I hope this calls people in. If you hear this and you've heard and you have eyes to see, come into the light. Don't remain in darkness. He who has ears, let him hear. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, <laughs> thank you so much for giving us your word and in these moments where we kind of peel the curtain back and see a little bit of how the turkeys are made. Lord, um, I just thank you for working it that we might be able to have salvation in you and that you've given it to us as a gift freely. Not something we have to find, not something we have to work for, but something you've given freely because it is good for you to have mercy on whom you will have mercy and it's good for you to have uh, grace on whom you will have grace on. Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, I pray that this would be glorifying you and that what we take from this is to make our lives about glorifying you and that that would be good for us. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn now into a time of communion and response. We would love for you to Reflect on these words that you've heard. 
If you don't have communion elements, actually we're planning now for all of you to be coming forward and to taking communion up front. And so as we start the, the next song, we'd invite you to come sort of by row, coming forward and grabbing communion and then come returning to your seats to take together. We do this every week as a way of reminding ourselves that Jesus is the center, central focus of our lives, the central focus of our salvation, that he has made this way of salvation for us. And so we want to encourage you to take a moment and reflect on what we've been talking about today and then come for communion. And so let me pray for us. Uh, we take the bread as a symbol of his body and the cup as a symbol of his blood and that he was he has given himself for us that we might be found in him so let me pray for us God we pray that you would bless this communion these communion elements and those who take uh, Lord if there are those who do not yet know you we pray that now would be the time that they would reach out to you that they would put their faith and their trust in you Lord, that this time of communion will be a, a response of those who believe in you and have put our faith and trust in you. So God, I pray that you would bless this time together. Pray that you be glorified in this. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we'll also have uh, some folks that are, that are ready to pray for you as well. And so if you'd like to come and pray after communion, we'd love for you to do that or before communion particularly if you'd like to put your faith in Jesus. We know that there would be people that would love to pray with you about that. So let's respond in worship together. You were the word at the beginning One with God the beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is, and nothing compares to this. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. Stand and sing with us. Death could not hold you. Death could not hold you. The veil tore before you. You silenced the ghost of sin and grave. The heavens, the heavens are
Don't 
we're gathering together to worship the Lord today. I want to uh, offer this benediction and, and invite you to join us uh, tomorrow for the blood drive and the various events that we have this week. And also we'll see you next Sunday. So Lord bless you. Lord keep you. Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord turn his countenance towards you.